Hello everybody, this is Drew um, from Drew for the World Drew versus the World. Welcome to the show. Today we have Dr. Yami, a certified lifestyle medical physician, a certified health and wellness coach, a board certified pediatrician, an author, a podcaster, a YouTuber, and a TED Talk speaker. Let's say she runs the gambit on greatness. Let's just put that in a bubble. Okay. We're putting that in. That's, that's the, the Venn diagram. We're putting that on top as greatness. So first and foremost, thank you so much for joining Drew vs. World podcast. And um, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I am, I'm super excited about this episode. I can't wait to have fun. I'm doing great. Awesome. Um, needless to say, you are a jack of, I want to say jack of all trades, all your um, professions kind of run into each other. And the, the overlining, I guess, goal I see is that you're trying to help people live a longer life yes. through a um, plant-based diet, right? Yes. yes. And also other lifestyle habits. So mm -hmm. obviously nutrition is supremely important. We talked a little bit about that before we started recording, but so is movement, physical activity, yes. stress reduction, sleep, connection to other people. We've definitely experienced that during COVID while we've been so isolated from other people. So nutrition is my favorite. I can talk about it day and night and in my sleep, <laughs> but I know that there's other factors that are also important to help us live long, healthy lives. So I always say there's kind of three centers of a human being. There's the physical the spiritual and the emotional. Mm -hmm. So for, to what you're saying, those all can be yes. helped through a plant-based diet and enriched through movement and through activity as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so I have to know, what is the origin story of you um, becoming an enthusiast of the plant-based diet? Well, I became interested in nutrition early on, but maybe not for the best reason. <laughs> I started dieting at age nine because I had already started getting comments from my family. My family started getting worried that I was getting too heavy and that spurred me to do my first diet. And it started several decades of yo-yo dieting in order to learn how to lose weight, you start learning about nutrition. So I've always been interested mm. in it. I've always been interested in helping other people maintain healthy weights. But it wasn't until I started my first job as a pediatrician and I reached my rock bottom as far as restricting and binging and just miserable as far as me trying to control the size of my body that I discovered both intuitive eating and plant-based nutrition at the same time. And I felt mm -hmm. like it was a huge liberation for me. But professionally, as a pediatrician, it simplified everything and made so much sense because we are having an epidemic right now. The standard American diet is not health-promoting. And you may or may not know that 60% of the calories that we consume here in the United States 60%, more than half, come from ultra-processed foods. When it comes to the category of processing of foods, ultra-processed is the most processed. Basically, an ultra-processed food you cannot make in your home. 
It is something that when you look at it, you can't even recognize where it came from. Like if you're like, I don't know what that came from. I don't know how they mm-hmm. made it. It's made in a factory. So 60% yeah. of our calories are coming from those foods. So before I learned about plant-based nutrition, I thought more in terms of calories and maybe some mm-hmm. nutrients. And of course, everybody's always like low carb, high yes, you know, caloric, protein, de- fat, deficit. whatever. Mm-hmm. But once I learned about plant-based nutrition, it just blew up my paradigm because it was more about whole food versus plant food and focusing on plants because plants have so many benefits. We got our fiber, we got our antioxidants, we have the satiety factor and the lower calorie density so that you can eat an abundant amount of food, feel good, feel satisfied, have energy, have brain power, yet it's not leading to the chronic health problems that we are seeing with processed foods and animal products. So that's maybe a shortened version of a very long story, (laughs) but that's kind of how I got there. So if we let me touch about I touch on something that you talked about in the beginning, which was kind of the the family pressure of, you know, quote unquote looking good. Yes. Um you are from a Panamanian family, yes. right? Um, a Panamanian background. And I, I see that happen a lot in and this is coming from somebody who's, you know, been in a lot I, I my grandfather's Panamanian as well. Oh cool. Um, and yeah, and my mother's from um, Barbados. So we have like kind of like um, cross. We're kin. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, I see that a lot. Definitely from um, people of the Caribbean culture, mm-hmm. talk a lot about you know p- kids being too heavy and things like that. So not just from a a physical standpoint. How did it feel for you emotionally, and how did you deal with that? Other than when you know you was kind of rapidly dying, dieting, did how was that how was that emotionally like swelling up to you well it's interesting because i am a perfectionist type a personality i've always been the straight a student i always mm-hmm. like to have some sort of way to measure myself whether it's grades or numbers or something like that so it was tough in some ways but in another ways in other ways i took it as this challenge that okay well mm-hmm. Apparently, I will get more validation. I will get more support. I'm getting all this encouragement to try to make my body smaller. And that's why I just kept going for it over and over and over again, despite failing, despite after every diet, things getting a little bit worse emotionally. But that's what's mm. that's what happens to dieters. That's what happens to people stuck in diet culture. We don't blame anybody else. We blame ourselves. We think there's something wrong with us. And so that's why every time we fail, every time we're just like, feel like we're going insane with these thoughts and binging and food restriction, we try again. We just keep trying and trying and trying again because in our minds, the goal is reach that goal. You can get more validation. You're finally going to be happy. You're finally going to have everything you want in life. Everybody's going to think you're amazing and awesome. You're going to get so much positive comments from people. And it just, the cycle continues over and over again. So it's really, really tough to break the cycle. And some people will probably never get out of it. I've encountered people that are over 70 that are still 
chronically dieting, still trying to get to that ideal size. I don't want to be 70 and 80 and 90 (laughs) and worried about how many calories I'm taking in so I can be in a smaller body. You know what I'm saying? So it is, it's very interesting because whenever you're stuck in that cycle, you don't see the problem as being outside of you. You think the problem is you. So what would you tell yourself at that age when you was chronic and dieting? What would you tell that little girl? You know, I've, I've shed tears over this. Recently, I was reading this book and it was just so good because it talked about all the effects of dieting and all of the disadvantages of dieting and trying to restrict your calories. I wish I could go back to my younger self and say, you don't have to do this. Let me teach you some important things about nutrition, not because you should be smaller or thinner, but because I want you to feel good. Mm. I don't want you to be constipated. I don't want you to be having tummy aches, you know, feel heavy after you eat. There's things that you can do. There's foods that you can change and eat differently so that you feel good and you have energy and you can live your best life, not for the purpose of weight loss. And I feel like if I would have taken that path instead, things would have been so different. But of course, I have to be grateful that I've had the experiences I've had because if I didn't, I wouldn't have the empathy I have. I wouldn't be the advocate I am for people. But, you know, it's hard knowing that you start at such a young age, so little. I was in the single digits when I started dieting. Yeah, that's hard to hear, but like you said, very not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, to definitely like with cheerleaders and dancers and uh, a- athletes, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the times they go under that distress as well. Um, you talked also about intuitive eating in your book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Yes. Can you explain what intuitive eating is? Yes. So intuitive eating is a way of eating a set of principles that was actually created by two dietitians. So Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. Back in the 80s, they published their first book in the early 90s. And so they developed this set of principles based on research, based on studies. And it is an anti-diet way of eating where you tune into your body, you honor your hunger, you honor your fullness, You approach foods with what they call gentle nutrition. So instead of having this black and white, this food is good, this food is bad sort of approach, it's more like what helps me feel good, what feels good in the moment. It's okay to celebrate with food, but try to focus on when we're eating to fuel ourselves, when we're emotionally eating, and then just try to tune in and pay attention. So it's a set of 10 principles. Their book is amazing. It's in the fourth edition already, but I wanted to take it and I wanted to help express those ideas to parents because Mm -hmm. what's amazing and what's awesome is that children are naturally born intuitive eaters. In the beginning, when they're nursing or when they're bottle feeding, we take it for granted because we, we know that we shouldn't force feed babies. We know that when they're done, they turn their heads away or they start Mm -hmm. crying, you know, okay, we're done. We're not going to force this little baby to keep eating their bottle. That would be cruel, you know? (laughs) And so we understand that. But as children grow, especially as they become toddlers, we start to teach them that they can't trust themselves because we start to encourage them to eat more. 
85% of parents try to get their children to eat more. And it's very common in that one to five-year-old age frame, age range, because children naturally eat less. They don't need as many calories. And their main goal in life during that age is to explore the world to mm -hmm. play games, to enjoy their lives. They don't want to sit down and have these long European style dinners and eat these huge <laughs> amounts of food, you know? And so as parents, we start to kind of go into their territory and try to micromanage their eating. So I simplify it down and encourage parents to honor their children's hunger, honor their children's fullness to not focus on food as a form of weight loss or weight gain, but more look at the benefits of food, not demonize any foods, but to make it fun, to know that we do as parents have the responsibility to make sure that we are offering our children health-promoting foods, but then it's our children's responsibility to decide if and how much they want to eat of those foods. And our job is done after we're offering the foods. We're providing the foods. We're making sure that they're available in the environment, that they have a positive environment, but we don't try to encumber onto their autonomy of deciding yes. if and how much they want to eat. So have you seen ever a parent who is teaching their child intuitive eating, well, at least you know, abiding by their original intuitive eating sensory um, mechanisms that the child already has. And they're not intuitive eaters themselves. So like parents that have, you know, they, they drink a two liter, have a Big Mac, some fries, and then they're giving their child, you know, broccoli and mushrooms. Have, have you seen that happen? Or I, love, it... I love this question because it's like a rhetorical question, right? Like... <laughs> No, I, I think mm. the best way we can teach our children intuitive eating is for ourselves to eat intuitively. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have lost it, so we have to relearn it. But it's possible to relearn it. And just like, the, like you were alluding to parents that complain that their children don't eat any vegetables, but they themselves don't eat vegetables, we have to remember that we are our children's primary role models. If we are not role modeling, if we are not being the example of eating vegetables, then our children aren't going to learn that. So we have to have it in the house. We have to provide it to our children, but we ourselves also have to be the models of that behavior. Yeah. And it's not about perfection at all. I definitely do not preach being perfect or, you know, trying to only eat all of these perfect superfoods. It's not about that. It's about how do you want to raise your children? How do you want your family to look? What is your vision for that? You have to start living that. And so you, that was a perfect question for that. It's true. It's really hard to raise an intuitive eater if you yourself are not eating intuitively. Yeah, I was kind of roping you into that one because it was, like you said, a almost rhetorical question. Um, so as far as then moving on into intuitive you have your book intuitive eating that's before i mean after the after you become a pediatrician so what yes. made you go into that line of business when you could have you had such a swath you're a straight a student you know you, <laughs> you you know going to medical school you could be a surgeon 
You can be making the huge bucks. Oh, man, no. There's no way I could be a surgeon. That would stress me out so much. I love being a pediatrician. I... Well, I'll tell you the, if you, if you like stories, I'll tell you the story of how I ended up a pediatrician. (laughs) I grew up as an only child. I did it. I babysat once in my entire teenage career. I spent most of my time around adults and very mature kids like me. Like, you know, we're all just like talking about Mm -hmm. our futures and, Mm -hmm. you know, like being intense, (laughs) intense people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I grew up in that. I, I think I probably didn't play enough as a kid. And whenever I was in medical school, I knew for sure, 100% certainty that I was not going to be a pediatrician. You know, I was like, I don't think I like kids. And I just didn't have familiarity with it. So I saved it for my very last, my final core rotation. By the time I had gotten to that final core rotation, I had already decided that I was going to be a geriatrician. So geriatricians are doctors that care for the most elderly in our population. Yeah. So yes, the, yes, other, yes. the other the side other side of, of that range, you know, mm-hmm. and I had already done research. I had a mentor. I had my path picked out. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I love geriatrics too. But then I got to my pediatrics rotation and I can even feel that feeling inside of me, that tingling feeling. By the end of that first week, I knew that this was going to be my profession. At that time, my husband and I were already married. We went to medical school together. I came home after that first week and I told him, I really like this. And he's like, oh, good. Because, you know, he was worried that I was going to hate the rotation. (laughs) I already had decided I was going to hate the rotation. It was going to be really hard and all of this for me because I don't like kids or whatever I thought at the time. And I said, no, I really, really like this. And that's when I changed. I decided that pediatrics was for me, but there was a lot of things I didn't know about myself at that young age. I didn't know that as the intense personality that I was, it actually felt really good to be around children because Mm -hmm. children are in the moment. They teach Mm -hmm. us the epitome of living in the moment. They're funny. They're adorable. They're beautiful. And I found myself smiling all day. It was really fun. I didn't feel that heavy sort of serious feeling I felt in all my other rotations where it was that intensity of like worried about doing things right. And these heavy, heavy topics, whenever you deal with children, even when it's hard, even when kids are sick, there's still a lightness about it. There's a playfulness about it because the children bring that in. And that's my favorite part about being a pediatrician. I'm so glad that I was able to allow myself that change. After I had already decided something, I allowed myself the opportunity to change my mind because I was wrong. So I have to ask this question as for any child who's listening to this, how do you give shots? (laughs) What is your, what is your like, what is your process? How do okay. you give a kid a shot? So this is a great question because I own my own practice now and I don't have a nurse or MA. So I administer all the shots and vaccines to kiddos. And I will say that at the beginning, it was really hard because 
usually pediatricians just order the nurse to do it. And then the nurse does all the quote dirty work. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So now that I didn't have that, I had to do it myself because of that. I made sure that I looked up all the techniques that I could that would decrease pain and anxiety for children. There's definitely going to be some children, especially the older ones, four, five, seven years old, that have a lot of anxiety as part of their personality. So mm -hmm. those can be a little bit challenging. But I use something called a shot blocker for all of my kiddos, which is like this mm. little device that has little rubber points on it. And so I put that down and that helps confuse the brain a little bit because it's getting lots of inputs around where the needle's going to go. And then I use another device called a buzzy and it vibrates and you put it near where the shot's going to be. And it does the same thing. It's a distraction technique. And I also have the parents hold the child at least until around age four or five. Then after that, children usually want to sit on their own. But for babies and for uh, up to preschooler, the parent is going to hold the child and kind of hug them so that they feel safe and comforted. And with all of those techniques, it works out pretty good. I'm able to do it really fast now that I've been doing it on my own for five years. And mm -hmm. I will say that a lot of my patients, especially the three to five-year-olds, they like to pretend that they're me at their house and, you know, they think I'm a superhero. So I think I'm doing pretty good because they don't hate me. So that's, that's the conclusion <laughs> that I'm going to come to when they pretend to be me that they probably don't hate me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hope my sister's not listening to this, but the story of my sister, she hate shots. Yeah. Uh, and when, when, when I say hate, I don't use hate a lot, right? <laughs> I tried to not use it a lot. It's a big buzzword in this house. But she hates, she used to hate shots. And when she used to scream so loud, and this is a little practice. Um, so it was probably maybe, it was a practice in New York. So little square footage, not a lot of space. She, you can hear down the street how loud oh she used gosh. to scream. Oh and gosh. the shot, the shot was, didn't even get administered yet. It was yeah. just her. So we had to like quietly, the doctor had to quietly go out and come in and sneak in there with the shots and then kind of like, okay, we're going to give you shots and just like prepare for the rambunctiousness that was going to happen. She was going to kick. She was going to scream. She was, she get off the table. So my mom had to like, kind of like hold her. And it was like a whole, it's a whole, it was a whole thing. Yes. Um, and so that's why I asked if, if there's any new way. So that shot block, I didn't even know that was a thing. So mm -hmm. that's, that's super, super helpful and good to know that the kid, the kiddos are not scared of the shots. Yeah. And some pediatricians, I don't do this for a few reasons, <laughs> but some pediatricians, especially with really small practices like mine, they might use mm -hmm. numbing cream as well. But a lot of times the numbing mm. cream takes 20 to 30 minutes to take effect. For kids that are super, super anxious, that could be something that can be used. But yeah, yeah I've had one patient run to the bathroom and lock herself in the bathroom when it was time to give shots. That's the most extreme I've had, but definitely the ones that huddle in the corner and the dad has to go over there and get them. Of course, by that time, the dad's super mad because the parents are both embarrassed, but you know, it's, it's normal. It's normal for people not to want to have a sharp needle put into their body. That's a normal reaction. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if they liked it, we, they, there's more conversations that need to be had. Exactly. I have a few that ask for shots, but it's not very, common <laughs> <laughs> um so so then you become a doctor um you get your doctor degree um and then you go in 
you learn about this intuitive eating, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you create this book, right? Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through the, creation, the book creation process? I'm highly interested. Yeah, like how I came to write a book. Yeah, like you got all the information. Yeah. You know, I know you did your research because from, from having this conversation with you, I know you did your research. Yeah. So gathering all the info research and then starting to write a book and then publishing it. Can you take me walking through that process? Yeah. So it's a, also a very interesting story. So I had decided to write a book specifically for plant-based parents about plant-based nutrition. But at that time, I was also feeling very compelled to teach people more about intuitive eating for children, especially the plant-based community, because I feel like that's one of the pieces in the plant-based community that we don't talk about enough is intuitive eating. And so I was one third of the way done with writing that book when I just didn't feel right anymore. So I set it aside and I had decided at that time, you know, I really want to write a book actually focused on intuitive eating. The nutrition part can be a piece of it, but I want to focus on the intuitive eating. And that felt right, but I felt like I need to take a break before I start over. And I had planned to self-publish, mm -hmm. but I kid you not, less than a week after I made that decision, I got an email from a publishing company that was looking for authors to write a book about intuitive eating for children. And that is called the law of attraction right there. <laughs> so I, How, and I, like, and it was just one of those things that when I read that email, I felt like shockwaves went through my body and I was mm. just like, well, of course, less than a week ago, I decided this is what I wanted to focus on. And then I get this email and they're looking for an author. And I said, yes, I'll do it. And I actually got a publishing deal from a publishing company. And then the book was published probably about 18 months after that. It does take time to go through the process. And the magical part about writing a book is the editing. You, you can write all you want, which is great. And I encourage people, mm -hmm. if they want to write a book, you just need to start writing. But you're not going to have a good book until you get a good editor. The editor is what makes your book good. You have to have a good editor. And I just saw my book transformed. And of course, whenever you write a book and you're ready to put something like that into the world, it really tests you. You know, you go through yeah. all kinds of an imposter syndrome. You feel like a fraud. Mm. You feel like you're never going to be. Who am I to write a book? Who am I to write a book, <laughs> especially on this topic? I'm not an expert, you know, and feeling like your writing is not good enough and who's going to read this. But what kept me in line, despite lots of tears, because I'm not going to lie, it, it, there's a lot of crying involved. What oh. kept me in line is that I reminded myself that I'm writing a book because. I want parents to feel a certain way. I want them to feel supported, encouraged, and empowered. I want them to feel that love from me, that they can do this, and that I know that they're doing their best. And thankfully, I think my book has accomplished that because those are the comments I get from moms, specifically are the ones who mostly read my book, that say, thank you for writing this book because... I feel so good now and I feel like I'm taking steps to live that life and to feed my family the way that I've envisioned. So as, as, as far as the book process is concerned, you talked about the editor, right? Is, is their process kind of like going back and forth with you of edits yeah. and you kind of have to 
make new chapters and things like that. And how long was that process? So you start with an outline and mm -hmm. then they approve the outline. And then after that's approved, they give you a certain amount of time before you have to get your first draft the first whole manuscript done. And mm -hmm. I would say that's the hard part, you know, because you're <laughs> just like, you're going, you're going by the outline, you're writing your stuff. But I wrote probably 30% more than the length of my book. And oh, wow. I think I'm probably a superfluous writer, you know? And so after I submitted that manuscript the first time, then the editor goes through it they make overall suggestions about, okay, we probably need to cut this section, these kinds of things. Cause now we're just refining. It's kind of like you get the yes. big outline of a sculpture and now you're doing the small it's chiseling, chisel, which chisel. that's where the, mm -hmm. that's where the magic is happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and then that's hard too, though, because you feel at some point, times you feel married to certain parts You're like oh, I don't want to take that part out but it's good to have a dialogue in you know back and forth but it's also good to have some trust in your editor because they they know what sounds good what flows well you don't, also don't want to overwhelm your reader and I'm the mm -hmm. kind of person that I want to put as much information as possible mm -hmm. in there but you don't want to overwhelm your reader so that they help kind of pull you back and be like you know we can we can tighten this up we can improve this doesn't sound right or this doesn't make sense. But they also made sure that they went in there and fact checked me too. Sometimes yeah. she would be like, are you sure this is true? <laughs> and I had to defend myself and be like, yes, it's true. Here are the studies, you know, and I put like a million references and we had to kind of tighten that up too. So uh, we go back and forth lots of times and then slowly you get to the final copy and it's it's time to really get the next, there's more than one kind of editor. There's that overall editor that helps you and, and helps with the flow and the topic. Mm -hmm. But then you have line editors. Those are the ones that go mm. through and make sure they catch all your grammar mistakes and your typos. And thank God those people exist, <laughs> you know, because once you've read something so many times, your eyes can't even catch the yeah. mistakes, you know? And so there's a whole team that their job is simply to go through and make sure that the grammar is right. And there's periods where there's supposed to be periods and capitals where there's supposed to be capitals. And then slowly your book is finished and then it's time to publish it. But I'll say that you never feel like the book is completely finished. You just have to decide that it's good enough. Like it's not, it's just not perfect. I mean, there's stuff now that I wish I could change and maybe someday I'll get the opportunity to do a second edition, but you won't ever feel like it's perfect. It's just time to hit complete and get yes. it, get it printed, you know? So what, what was the f first, first question? Who was the first cell? If you, if you know who the first cell was, and then what was the feeling of it actually being sold to somebody the first time you saw it? I actually have no clue because okay. they, what's really interesting about books is they put them up for sale before the book's done. So when oh, you okay, see yes. these Pre places where they're mm -hmm. pre-orders, it's just up mm -hmm. there. It's on Amazon. They also put them up for sale with wholesalers that, you know, mm -hmm. they sell them to libraries and yep. all of these things. So it was up and it, I had a page and everything ready months before the book was even completed. But I had like a little launch party and my favorite thing ever was sitting there and 
signing my own book. I mean, it still feels amazing. You know, I had all the different color Sharpies. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> so being able to sit there at the table and give little personalized notes to my friends and my family and my, my patient parents. And, you know, mm. that just, just felt like a really magical time in my life. Yeah, I can. That's, that's always been like a um, interesting kind of form of art for me. The, the writing of the book because it takes so many people to build yes. that book yes. like you said and to know that there's not two I never knew there was two editors I always thought there was just one editor that kind of did everything but to know that there's a refinement there that goes from yes. the beginning process to the end process it makes me appreciate books a lot more yeah no there's at <laughs> least three if not more so there's like that overall wow. and then there's two different kinds of editors that go through the line and grammar and all that stuff you know there's a whole team and of course there's a another person that does your book cover and i love my book mm. cover i think it's just <laughs> yeah, so adorable so, nice. so i was so just nice. so happy with that somebody designed that based upon the concept, you know, they kind of thought of it from their own head. Okay, this is what the book is about. What about this? And it turned out way better than I could have ever <laughs> imagined in my brain. Um, so yeah, it's it's a whole process. It's very interesting and fun, but of course, it it causes you to grow for sure. Wr writing a book will be a growth process. <laughs> Always, hopefully, in the future, you know, Drew vs. the World blows up, and I'm able to write my memoirs. And I always, always thought about that process. Definitely nowadays where, you know, like you, like you were going to do, you, a lot of people can self-publish now yes. and, you know, eBooks and things like that. So I, I encourage pe some people that have something to say to write books and, you know, go through the process and let me know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I encourage um, everybody to do it. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Exactly. If you, if you have a book inside of you, work on it, write it. And there's people that will prefer to go through the, a publisher route and the traditional mm -hmm. finding an agent. You know, I, I got to skip over that because my publishing company does things differently. But then there's people mm -hmm. that choose to self-publish. And I've heard that the people that self-publish can actually make more money that way. They can make a bigger profit. So, but you still, regardless of which way you publish, what I tell people is remember that your book becomes a good book through the help of an editor. Don't neglect that. Don't trust yourself yeah. to be the one. You have to have more eyes on it, hopefully multiple other eyes who are professionals that they do this every day. I encourage you to make sure you find a good editor. Yeah, because we've all read that book that had that one typo and you're like, they didn't catch this? Why didn't they catch this? Uh, so for, from the book, um, um, was the TED Talk before or after? It was before. Okay. So how did that get initiated and how did you get into that? Like, what's the process of being a TED, a TED talk speaker? Well, it's, it had been on my bucket list and I'm just fortunate that we have a TEDx salon here in Yakima in my city. Ah. And I, I don't even know how it happened, but I was able to get in touch with the organizers of the TEDx mm -hmm. and I just emailed them and said, Hey, if you're ever looking for speakers, my name is Dr. Yami. This is what I would love to speak on. Mm -hmm. And I got a reply back. Well, we're completely filled up for the year. We meet, you know, this time and it was going to be like several months, like three or four months later. And we will put you on the list of considerations. And I was like, okay, well, at least I put my 
thought out there, my request yes. out there to them and to the universe. And this is another one of those things that's crazy because literally like three weeks later, I get an email. The speaker we have in six weeks had to cancel because whatever thing, can you fill in? Can you believe that? And so I only had six weeks, which was a little now bit shorter than I, usual. <laughs> yeah. Like now I can't believe it happens. It happened to you because it's already happened once. I'm like, why yeah. can't it happen twice? <laughs> and so, and of course, part of me was like, no way. I don't have enough time. Oh, I want to throw up like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think I'm ready. But thank goodness I said yes. And it was a great process. And that's a very formal process as well. So a lot of people think mm. you, you do a TED talk, you just do whatever and you go up there. But no, I had to meet with the committee several weeks, they had to approve my talk. I had to mm -hmm. practice it in front of them. It has to meet very strict criteria for TEDx talks. But of course, that was another magical time in my life. And I rented this beautiful dress and I got to stand on the red dot and it was just awesome. I'm so glad I got to do it. I'd love to do it again, but it's not something that I want to rush into. I'm ready to build a good foundation so that my next TED talk can be even better than the first. Yeah. And it, it was amazing. I listened through it and it was honestly, it was amazing. There's Thank a lot you. of information there um, and you made it digestible, no pun intended, digestible <laughs> to- It's a good <laughs> pun some, though, actually. Yeah. <laughs> digestible to, to myself who didn't know as much awesome. um, into the intuitive eating space. So I appreciate that. Um, so now into your other ventures podcasting and youtubing mm -hmm. um the podcast is veggie doctor radio and the yes. youtube is veggie doctor tv they kind yes. of i would say they play off of each other um what made you go into podcasting and what made you start wanting to take uh you know youtube to the next level as well yeah. So I actually started my YouTube channel before I started podcasting and it was first called Veggie Fit Kids because I started a website called Veggie Fit Kids mm -hmm. so that parents of plant-based children or parents and families that wanted to raise plant-based children could have a place that they could go for support. So I, mm -hmm. I started that several years ago and then that's where my YouTube channel took off because I wanted to show easy, easy accessible, simple, delicious recipes for children and families. And I would do a recipe video once a month. They started slow. I was super busy at that time. My kids were smaller and I was working full time still as a pediatrician. So I just did it when I could. But it was almost four years ago that I decided that podcasting would be a good venture because I still had a lot to say. I love talking with people just like me and you were having such a blast doing this. I love interviewing people. And also podcasting in some ways can be easier. Now, of course, now that we do video, you still have to, yes. as far as women, you know, we still get our makeup on. But before, when I first started podcasting, it was audio only. So I didn't have to mm. do all my hair, my makeup and wear the clothes. I could just sit down and record on my own time. It didn't have to be a certain time of day or bright outside. And so that made it a little bit more accessible for me to have more regular content. And it's just taken off from there. And now I'm publishing my videos for my podcast to my YouTube. And yes. someday I hope to start making videos again. But it is a different process. And it can be a little bit more time and labor intensive as far as editing video. So that's why I feel like podcasting is going to be my primary mode uh, going forward. But you never know. So who, who has been your, and I know it's like, it's like literally picking your children when I'm about to ask you. Who has been your favorite guest so far 
on the podcast? Oh man, that's really hard. Um, Oh, who has been your most inspirational? Let me ask that question. I don't know. I think everybody's just so great. I would say that, and I don't even remember looking at my stats recently who has the most downloads, <laughs> but I would say as far as like, I, I have so much fun. I, it's really hard to pick, but I would say mm -hmm. that I had so much fun talking with Dr. Will Bolsovich. He is a plant-based GI doctor who wrote a book called Fiber Fueled, and we had a blast. But I have so much fun with so many. The Sure Size recently, they are plant-based neurologists that focus on mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and dementia. And that last episode we had together just felt like perfection. We just played off of each other and really got the information, but in a fun, playful way. But over time, I feel like because I get better as a podcaster and because I am careful about selecting my guests, every episode just feels great. I mean, it, it all feels wonderful and I just love it. It's just, it's my lifeblood podcasting. Yes. And you are 153 episodes in right now? Um, 168 is I think what we just published or we'll publish on Sunday. So. Yeah. So you have. You know, uh, if anybody wants to learn anything about plant-based, just go through her catalog of amazing podcasts with her amazing guests. And you can learn so much as I did from literally just one episode. I was like blown away. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is going to be my new favorite thing to listen to. Aww. And I, and I literally can say that because I've always been to your point. I, I'm a chronic dieter myself. Mm. So I always. I always like to try everything twice, mm -hmm. right? So my whole thing is like, okay, I, for my entire junior high school to high school career, I was mainly plant-based, right? Mm -hmm. um, just because it helped with my efficiency in sports. Yeah. Um, eating a lot of vegetables and, um, you know, a little bit of protein, um, no limited carbs or carb load before a track track meat mm -hmm. remember when that everybody was like hey you need a carb load remember that mm -hmm. <laughs> i used to eat like pasta the day the night before and feel like dragging the night the day um <laughs> i had to actually compete um and then i would do a vegan and then i would do you know atkins then i would do carnivore diet then i would do you know um keto and i was doing all these different types of things so it really kind of your podcast really puts into place the actual data that some people aren't sharing with yeah. us who are in the midst of trying to find something that we can hold on to, mm -hmm. to make us feel healthy. Yeah. Because that's been my goal recently. Like I like to be, I like to be jacked. I have a gym in the house, whatever. But my main thing nowadays is just be healthy. I want to be able to be here as long. And I think you said this in, it was your Ted talk or something I heard. It was like, live a, a long life, but live a good long life as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's highly important for me. Um, and that's why you very much resonate with me. Um, and so I have to ask, and as far as the personal is concerned, is your kids really into this plant-based um, kind of diet? Are they like 100% committed? Or are they like, mom, whatever, you do this for a job, whatever. <laughs> you know, so how have, have you indoctrinated them and, and kept them into it with all the other information that's kind of like going yeah. around their, their stream as well? Well, I feel super lucky. 
we transitioned about 10 years ago. So my plantiversary will be in July and I transitioned them a month after I did. So I wanted Mm. to do the research and make sure it was safe and beneficial. And of course that blew my mind a whole another paradigm shift there, but they were at the time 18 months and six years old. And because Mm. I'm the person that does the groceries and buys the food and everything, it, they had no choice, really. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't make this big deal of it. It wasn't like, okay, everybody, we're not eating meat. It was more <laughs> like, now we're going to focus more on eating plants and these kinds of things. And I'm a good cook. And I think that my children naturally aren't huge meat eaters anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was never a problem. They are predominantly, I would say 99.9% vegan plant-based because we Mm. also talk about in our house, the environmental impacts of what we eat, how we choose to live and also animal rights, because I think it's important to talk to kids about that. Whatever we normalize is what kids are going to grow up believing. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and so that's important to me and they're on board with all of that. But we also have a flexible lifestyle. We call it flexing. So if they go to a birthday party and they're offered cupcakes and they feel like having a cupcake, there's no shaming to that. And we know that we don't live in a vegan world. So most cupcakes are not going to be vegan (laughs) and, you know, things like that. But if they had the choice, like if someone said, here's a vegan cupcake, here's a non-vegan cupcake, they're going to choose the vegan one because that is what their, where their values lie. But, but we're flexible. So we're going to live our life. We're going to celebrate. We're going to enjoy our life. And they also have learned how to tune into their bodies and determine if something feels good to them or if it doesn't feel good. And so when parents worry about, because once kids get into school and go to parties and celebrations, there's Mm -hmm. all of these treats around all of these, what I call play foods. And if you support and encourage that intuitive eating in your children, you don't have to worry because you trust that they trust themselves. And if they have too many cupcakes or too many Twizzlers at the party, they're going to tune into their body and be like, you know what, next time, I don't think I'm going to make that choice because it doesn't feel good. Not because they're going to get fat if they do it, not because they're going to die of a heart attack if they do it, not for any of those reasons. We can talk about some of those things. We could talk about health benefits of food, but I think the most important thing is trusting them that they can tune into their bodies and make decisions for their well-being. So if I was on the fence, right, and and I said, hey, doc, can you please cook me up something that would make me, you know, buy into this vegan diet 100%, what would you cook me? Oh, my gosh. That's a difficult request because I'm a good cook, okay? So there I, is I, a lot of things I, I can make that are amazing. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, wow. Well, what's your favorite cuisine type? And I'll tell you See, what I would make. Yeah, I, I'm, hey, I'm flexible. I'm very anything. flex. Okay. And, and so, literally anything. Okay. So I would probably make some good taco roasted chickpeas, a nice mm-hmm. creamy cashew cheesy sauce, some homemade corn tortillas, some yummy brown rice, and all of the sides, guacamole and salsas and some shredded cabbage, maybe even some pickled onions. And we would just have ourselves a taco party and you would love it. 
Hey, you, you can <laughs> never go wrong with tacos, first and foremost. Anything in a shell, I, I'll, I'll guzzle down. So that sounds delicious. So that I won, delicious. huh? <laughs> yes, you won. I'm, I'm completely on the other side of the fence now. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm eating tacos, so that's beautiful. Um, so as far as your other parts of your family, like your, your, your mom, your dad, the, the family members that probably grew up that, weren't, that are not, you know, in the, I, I, won't, I don't call it a lifestyle, but not into intuitive, intuitive eating and not into mm-hmm. vegan lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, have you won them over as well? Or are they kind of like, hmm? <laughs> so it was me first, then my kids and my husband. My, my husband mm-hmm. wasn't completely plant-based for a few years. He was still socially mm-hmm. omnivorous, so restaurants and things like that. But everything I mm-hmm. cooked at home was plant-based. It took him a few mm-hmm. more years. But then my mother decided six months after I did to do the the January vegan challenge through the Physicians yes. Committee for Responsible Medicine. They have a free app. So she did that for a month. And after that, she was sold. So she was on board. And then it took my dad, uh, you know, he is the main cook. So he would cook all the plant-based stuff, but then he was also the social or sometimes eat this, sometimes eat that. But then mm-hmm. I sent them to the Engine 2 Diet Retreat with Dr. McDougal was talking at that one. And I knew that my dad would really listen to Dr. McDougal because (laughs) Dr. McDougal, same generation, they're almost the same age. And I knew that the way that Dr. McDougal is with the way that he talks, that it would win him over is the best money I've ever spent to send my parents (laughs) to that conference. Cause when he got back, he was converted over fully plant-based So that's my little family. And we spent a lot of time together because my parents live with us six months out of the year and they snowbird to Panama the other six months. But the rest of my family is a different story. And I don't see them as much. They live in Panama. My Mm -hmm. uncle and my grandparents, we have a dairy farm there. And so they're immersed in agriculture. My uncle, he's an agriculture advocate. So he even has his own radio show on Sundays and he really cares about farmers, which I do too. And that's what I help talk to vegans about too, is how we can have empathy and love for farmers, but at the same time, also try to advocate for animals and find ways that we can reduce our intake of animal products while still knowing that these are humans that really believe they're doing the best they can in the world. I believe that they are doing the best they can in the world. So that part of my family still doesn't really believe me much yeah. <laughs> about <laughs> the, the power of plants, and they're still more on animal products being the highest point of, you know, health and those kinds of things. So I think it will take a while, but I think it's fine. You know, everybody has to come in at their own pace and they have to decide for themselves. And first and foremost, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. My goal Mm -hmm. is to just encourage people to eat more whole plant foods. Because if we're starting at 60% of our calories from ultra processed foods, you don't have to go 100% to benefit. Even if you could just decrease that percentage by replacing it with whole plant foods, you're going to feel the difference. Your blood work is going to show the difference. So you don't have to be thinking in your head right now, the choice is either A, I stay exactly where I am, or B, I go 100% plant-based. That doesn't have to be the choice. The choice can be, how can I put more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds into my breakfast, lunch, dinner, my snacks? How can I find ways to integrate more whole plant foods? It doesn't have to be all or nothing. 
Yeah, and one thing I, I really like that you said was like, hey, even start with just having a plant-based breakfast, which yes. is super easy to do, or even like a plant-based lunch, which most people do with like salads and things like yeah. that. But of course, get, you know, you get the salad yourself, you chop up everything yourself, and you make a nice, beautiful salad, and then you're, what, you're, what, 25, what, let me say, 33 and a quarter percent there for your yes. daily meals? So, so then you can just start at that and you're to your point, immediate change, because I remember I, 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 cause I like to test my body all the time. So I would go, I, I, before I started this kind of like fitness journey, um, I would go a week of binging. I would just binge, binge food and just, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I know what that feels like. Cause I used to do it. <laughs> so I used to just binge food, just eat cupcakes eat what you call it all the all the junk um and not basically not put a cap on what i'm eating right and then i would take that away completely so i would go just protein veggie and maybe a nuts for my fat right and then just drink gallons of water a gallon of water a day and the change for my body from then to then just the feeling of my body Mm -hmm. was night and day so to your point, just minimal changes and just slowly progressing and growing into like just having an understanding of what of whole foods is highly important. And people of, you know, and I really I really want to be on a soapbox for this for people of color, mm-hmm. because that is where a lot of the diseases that are inflicting our society is coming from it's coming from the processed foods of you said one thing in your ted talk about applesauce like i i i can get a food processor and make applesauce but no i'm buying mats which has all these preservatives and all these different sugars and things like that um and the one that i create myself is going to taste much better <laughs> so i really love what you're saying in the in the form of what you're saying in it because it's it really touches home to a lot of you know people that i love and care about are not getting a picture in their head <laughs> that is highly important. Yeah. I think that some people just have never heard of the concept mm. of the power of nutrition. I, I think they believe that their health and their well-being is something that lies outside of them that somebody else has to do or some pill that you have to take. Mm. But really, nutrition is one of the keystones of our health and well-being. And you have more power than you think over it. One of the different sayings that is said very often in the uh, plant-based community is genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger, meaning that Mm. you are not destined to get a certain condition just because everybody in your family has it. So I think a lot of people just give up. They're like, well, everybody has diabetes. doesn't matter what I eat. That's not true. That is not even remotely true. You have more control. Start eating more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Eat less processed foods, drink water, sleep. You have more control than you think you do. And I think when people are empowered and they're given that message that they have control, then they start thinking about it. Maybe I will make these choices because they help me feel good. And that's why I also like to redirect the conversation. This is not about our weight or our body size. This Mm -hmm. is about health and well-being and the choices that we can make because that's our compass. That's our North star is how are you feeling? Are you having the energy? Are you sleeping good? Are you digesting well? That is 
the indicator, that's your litmus test for if the choices you're making are working for you. And everybody should be able to trust themselves that way. A hundred percent. I want to leave that opinion that there because that's, that's all, that's all everybody needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to transition to what I like to call shots fired. All right, let's do so, it. Shots for anybody who'd ever heard podcast before shots fired is elevated icebreakers It's about 15 or 20 questions um which are starts off very simple in the beginning and gets a little bit more thought-provoking at the end so um the first thing that comes to your head we just let it fly okay Okay. are you ready i'm ready let's do it (laughs) and this is shots fired what's your favorite color purple what's your favorite sport Running. What's your favorite movie? Um, Inside Out. What movie do you hate to love? It's an interesting question. What movie do I hate to love? Um, I don't think there's any I hate to love. I'm I'm totally comfortable with every movie I love. So, <laughs> okay. good one. Um, what's your favorite cartoon show? Um. Man, you know, I love the Backyardigans because as an adult, my son really loved it and it just brings me great memories. So it's a cartoon (laughs) that I love as an adult, not as a child. What's your favorite cereal? Oh, Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. Ooh, yes. That should be everybody's favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Have you had Oops All Berries? No, I, I mean, Ooh. you have to have the whole thing. I don't want all berries. I want the okay. crunch part and the berries. <laughs> Got to have the, the roof of your mouth destroyed. It's destroyed. Uh. <laughs> I mean, and I, as an adult, of course, you know, being plant-based and eating this wholesome lifestyle, <laughs> I had this party once where we did cereal and plant milks and stuff. I hate that stuff. I was like, the roof of my mouth was completely destroyed, but then also it like tasted waxy and not good anymore. Mm-hmm. But still, I'm still going to, I'm still going to say it's my favorite, even though it actually doesn't taste good as I remember when I was a kid. <laughs> so what is your favorite drink? Water. Okay. What is your favorite TV show? Well, I'm going to say The Simpsons because my sons and I started watching it from the very beginning. We're on like season 10 or 11 right now. Nice. What's one place you want to visit that you haven't gone yet? Thailand. What's one fictional world or place you would like to visit? Oh, man. Any place that has unicorns and glittery skies and rainbows (laughs) And fairies and angels and that kind of thing. (laughs) As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A doctor. Um, If you had had a choice in having a fictional character as an imaginary friend, who would it be? Oh. This is the first thing that comes to mind. I was going to do the first thing that comes to mind, but Mm -hmm. it's going to have to be the Mandalorian because he can kick butt. (laughs) I like that. Um, Who is your celebrity crush? I don't know who it is right now, 
But when I was growing up, it was Brad Pitt. And then I ended up marrying a Brad, but not Brad Pitt. There you go. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or forward in time? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I think initially I'd probably go back. Um, what's the first song that comes to your head? None. Now that you said that, <laughs> uh, this all goes away. <laughs> well, the first song that I woke up with this morning was the one with the weekend and Ariana Grande, the, the tears one. Now I can't remember what it's called. Uh, okay. I think I know you're talking about. Do you, do you, did you know that Aria Grande? Grande is supposed to be said a different way. It's not Grande. It's like No, I thought she was Italian. Like yeah. I would I, say it's I, probably I, pronounced I, Grande, but I don't know. I don't speak Italian. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I heard that <laughs> on some show, but I'm, they, they might have just been pulling my leg. Um, what would be the name of your autobiography? um she was passionate and she lived if you had it if you had a superpower what would it be i would be like a care bear that i could emit pure light energy and love to anybody and everybody. And it would never run out. It would be like limitless, beautiful, pure light that I could just give away endlessly. You have one best answer for that question. <laughs> I've actually you thought about one. that a lot. I try to meditate <laughs> on that. Like I wish I could just, that's what I try to do as much as possible. So we'll see. That's awesome. That's like, yeah, best answer. Um, who's your favorite artist? And I want to preface this by saying it doesn't have to be a musical artist. It could be a painter. It could be a dancer. It's anybody whose art invokes emotion to you. Okay. Well, somebody who I've been super impressed with for a long time is an artist that goes by the name of Overwork, O-V-E-R-W-E-R-K. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's Canadian, no. but he does EDM type music but he also mm -hmm. does all kinds of other arts and his music is amazing but recently I've discovered how he he goes to these depths when he creates his art and he tries to apply it in lots of different ways so I, I'm just really impressed by him and how he lives his life and the art he produces I like that I'll definitely be looking him up um, um, last but not least one of my favorite questions what is your death row meal? Ooh, okay. I need an app. I need an app. I need an entree and I need dessert. Okay, perfect. So I already know what the entree and the dessert would be. I think the appetizer is a little bit difficult, but I think I'm going to start with Brussels sprouts, but I want those Asian, like, you know, pan fried Brussels sprouts that are sweet and savory. Definitely. Mm. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do a nice big bowl of, you know, I love chickpeas. That's why I brought them up earlier. So roasted chickpeas, <laughs> brown rice, cheesy sauce, kale, something good like that. And then we're going to end with like an entire platter of donuts. 
So, <laughs> so we start with some good veggies. I don't want to feel awful when I'm about to die, but we got to get the donuts in there too. So as far as donuts, what are we having here? We're having a Boston cream. Are we having an original glazed? What's, what's the favorite? Well, I would say I just like the plain glazed, but there is this place in Portland called Doe Donuts, D-O-E, like the deer. Yes, I've heard and of it. And they mm-hmm. have the best donut. It's called the Dulce de Leche. It's like a plain glazed, but a little bit of a twist. It's like little cinnamony. And it is heaven. Like I dream about that donut. So I would, if I could get specifically dough donuts. And then maybe I would have one that's got like chocolate glaze on it and maybe mm-hmm. one like the cinnamon sugar kind, but definitely the the dulce de leche donut would be my go-to. All right. And here is my bonus question. Okay. And, and this <laughs> bonus question is powered by Poddex. Poddex is a um, either a physical or an app that you can get a lot of like podcast prompts or just conversation prompts. Ooh. And if you go to poddex.com and type in DVSW, that's Drew versus the world, DVSW, type it in before you check out, you get 10% off. All right. So the question you have is coming from the WTF section. I'm going to say the first, the oh, first no. question here. Yeah. I'm worried. <laughs> All right. First question. If you were a villain or criminal mastermind, what would be your calling card? Ooh, something glittery. Um, I don't know, like maybe some sort of like glittery coin pink glitter kind of flashy thing. But I was going to say, I'm going to add to this question. I would be a good villain because my (laughs) fingerprints don't work. So I had to, in order to become licensed in the state of Washington, they asked for fingerprints. We did it eight times before they finally gave up and said, okay, you don't have to do fingerprints to do like a background check instead. Social security number background check. And on my iPhone, it's super annoying because 80, 90% of the time, my fingerprint doesn't work on there to unlock my phone. So maybe it would be like a pink glittery glove, which would be ironic because I wouldn't need to wear gloves as a criminal. Uh, So let's just do that. I like that a lot. (laughs) I like that a lot. And the last question, the real last question. <laughs> it keeps going. It keeps on going. It's just nonstop. Real last question. And this is, this is the, to wrap it up. Um, what are you doing or what do you want to do that's changing the world? I want to empower people to take charge of their health and well-being, to eat more whole plant foods, and to adopt habits and behaviors that contribute to their well-being, joy, and longevity. I love that. Okay, again, Dr. Dr. Yami, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest. Um, thank you so much for being on Drew vs. the World. Um, can you please tell everybody how they can find you and get, first and foremost, let me tell you guys, she has so much free information to become plant-based. So please, she's about to give you where you can go to get all this information. Just go there and get all this information to learn more about her and learn about how you can live an intuitive eating lifestyle. But I'll let her tell you. 
Awesome. <laughs> well, for that free information, I have a great place to go, dryami.com. That's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E. And all my freebies are under there. We're really excited about the latest one, which is the bean freebie, all about beans, because I realized people don't really know how to cook beans, like what recipes to make mm -hmm. them in. And so I wanted to have a resource for people that they know they want to eat more beans. They just don't know how. So there's lots of great recipes and tips in there, but there's also an intuitive eating guide, eating out guide, how to reduce dairy, how to reduce meat. There's so many ways that you can start incorporating more whole plant foods into your life. So please check out dryami.com forward slash free. I'm also very active on Instagram at the Dr. Yami spelled out Facebook and my newest obsession clubhouse. So you'll probably find <laughs> me on there more than I should be on there. But as you can see, I love to talk. So I love clubhouse. And just like Drew said, my podcast veggie doctor radio, which is available on all podcast players. So yeah, lots of places to check me out. I would love to have you and I'm happy to help you via DMS. If you have a question, I can point you the right direction. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so on, on Drew vs. the World, we have one final thing that we do, and we say the catchphrase. And usually, the catchphrase is love, peace, and chicken grease. Oh, chicken grease. no! <laughs> Sorry. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to omit the chicken grease part. And you can, you can, I don't know what the vegan option would be for that. But you can plug that in. So it'll okay. be love, peace, and... Okay. <laughs> so that I just say my thing and then what I say? Goodbye or what? Yeah. Just say, just say uh, this is Dr. Miami um, for on the World Podcast. Love, peace, shape, well, whatever. <laughs> okay, perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. This was such a great way to spend some time. I appreciate your curiosity. You're a wonderful podcast host. Made me feel amazing. <laughs> so thank you for all the listeners. Thank you, Drew. Love, peace, and plants. There we go. And this has been another episode of Drew versus the World.